what's really important is this holistic understanding of learning that can drive us. And once you start with learning, and once you start with people and helping people grow in faith, then we can use all kinds of methods to help them do that. That one reframing of the way we think about faith formation can change everything in a congregation. Because then we look at worship and say, huh, how do we learn in and through worship? Then we look at our social justice efforts and our service efforts. How do we learn through acting for justice and serving people, et cetera, et cetera. So learning becomes our kind of our dynamic. So forming faith and faith formation, something goes on 24-7 at home, church, the community, the world, online. It's overwhelming for people to say, oh my goodness, but it's also freeing. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, the Education Director and the Northeast Director, and with me is the unadvertisable Ben Tapper. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. It's good to be here. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to Google unadvertisable just to see if the connotation is more positive or negative because that one can really go both ways. I feel like <laughs> no advertisement will do you justice, sir. That's what's in my mind. There we go. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Hey, we're really excited about this episode and starting back up season four after our break. And today we're talking with John Roberto, the president of Lifelong Faith Associates, and he's going to be talking with us about faith formation. And so faith formation is a specific term that is used in certain circles, but it can also mean discipleship. But the bottom line is it is trying to help the people in your congregation understand and learn and grow in the faith tradition for which you gather. So again, that could be discipleship. It could be called faith formation. You might think of it as catechism or basically just any kind of way that you're trying to teach people the faith of your community. And this topic is important for pretty obvious reasons, but faith formation in some way, shape, and form touches on almost every aspect of congregational life, or at least every person that is involved in a congregation can access and deal with faith formation in a way that isn't always true of other topics. Like not every person in the congregation really has to have the same level of concern about buildings or even always about mental health. But when we think about faith formation being formed, especially from a developmental lens, this touches everyone in about the same way, or at least it can. And that's why I think this topic is so important. Yeah, I would agree. And I also think that congregations probably ought to think of this as the primary reason why they exist and how mental health studies and how facility requirements and issues and how Sunday or Saturday worship services or discipleship, you know, Bible studies, things like that, all of those things, hopefully you would think would serve the idea of faith formation, that that's the primary reason why you're gathering. And so it's kind of the core of what it means to be a congregation. Because when I think about faith formation, my early understandings were pretty narrow, right? Like I'm literally trying to form the faith or have my faith formed or developed, which it is that, but it's more than what I would say just one's faith, right? It's about helping a person develop. It's about meeting them contextually where they're at and being concerned with and thinking about their emotional and mental development as well as their spiritual development or maybe even occasionally their physical development. Um, And so it's much more all-encompassing than I think I originally thought about it, at least when I was younger. Yeah, I think I've come to a similar realization that this is the way that you walk in the world based on what you claim to be true about faith and about ultimate reality and about the divine. Yeah, 100% agree, 100% agree. And so, you know, when I think about where this shows up in our work as consultants for the Center for Congregation, sometimes it can be tricky to see. Like, yeah, I've got congregations that have come to me for a specific curriculum, for Sunday school, right, which can fall under faith formation. We've got people or congregations that have sought out some of our major grants or special grant initiatives around faith formation. But it's such a nebulous topic that sometimes it's hard to see, oh, yeah, 
what this congregation is trying to do is faith formation, right? It might be a professional development trip. It might be a retreat. It might be a way they're thinking about revamping a preaching series. And it may not on the surface seem like formation or dealing with how people are meant to walk in the world. But in fact, I think each of those things can fall under the umbrella of faith formation. So it's hard to tell when we're dealing with it in our work, but I think it's safe to say it comes up pretty often here at the center. Yeah, I think not only just the larger understanding of faith formation, but I get specific requests about helping to find catechism for children or for youth. I get specific questions about discipleship curriculum, things like that. And so I think those are kind of the common categories or buckets that people think of when they're thinking about faith formation. And so we get a lot of those requests and there's a lot of helpful information and material out there. But what I hope this episode will do for people is help expand the thinking of what it means to form faith and to realize that there are so many other activities that, number one, you may already be doing in your congregation or things that you can implement that are relatively simple that would expand your ability to disciple or to form the faith of the people in your congregation. I think that's what John is just so good at. Yeah, no disagreements. Before we jump into the interview with John, for those that might be like myself that are, you know, six minutes into this interview and realizing that they still don't actually have any idea what the word catechism means, and it is not, in fact, the same thing as the word catacombs. Can you just break that down for (laughs) us, Matt? Yeah, catechism is just a specific term that means basically Christian education in certain faith traditions. And so you might also hear, um, no, you wouldn't hear that. I was about to pull a Greek word out of thin air, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Just in case. And it's not, no, it was, it made sense in my head, but then I thought about it. And I'm like, no. So never mind that. Let's move on. Okay. I love it. Uh, all right, y'all. Well, we got a great interview and had a great conversation with John. And so without further ado, let's just jump into the interview. So here's John Roberto, president of Lifelong Faith Associates. Welcome back. And we are here with John Roberto, a president of Lifelong Faith Associates. John, thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure. John has done a number of Ed events for us, and we have read and recommended a number of his books over the years, but we're excited for him to talk a little bit about Lifelong Faith Formation for All Ages and Generations, which came out in 2022. And John, one of the first things off the cuff was just in the introduction where it was discussed about Semen Nosrad's Salt, Fat, Acid, and Heat, the Netflix special. And so I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a little bit about the analogy you were using for faith formation. I've been working in the lifelong faith formation area for decades, and you're always trying to find a way to take a really big concept, formation with all ages and all stages, and get it to a level where people not only understand it, but actually do something, implement it, so it's clearer. And so I watched Sam and Nasrat's great Netflix series. So if you haven't watched it, you should definitely watch it. And what I admired was she didn't make a chef out of me or a cook out of me, but she's a wonderful teacher. And the way she simplified cooking into just these four basic elements of salt, fat, acid, heat, it kind of caught my attention and said, is there a way to think about faith formation with all ages and all stages that you could say, these are some of the key elements in the 2020s. Now, they would have been different 10 or 20 years ago, but these are some of the key elements that if you work these elements you can develop a lifelong plan, not all at once, you know, stage of life by stage of life, but you can develop a lifelong plan. And so I started with a list that was far too long because I admired her four and I said, I don't know if I can get to four, but I came up with seven that kind of integrated a lot of the work I'd done in the last 20 years, but especially in the last 10, 12 years in terms of thinking about 21st century models of faith formation. And so she's just inspired me to think about it. And I think as I've done workshops and programs and presentations on it, they give people some very concrete ways to think about, here's how we could form faith and discipleship across the whole lifespan. Whether we're working on one age group or working with families or working intergenerationally, I can use these seven elements and put them into practice 
that will help me grow. And so I always emphasize with people that the seven elements aren't meant for you to do a lifelong faith formation, like in the fall, you know, like, but over a couple of year period, you can use the seven elements to build out across the whole lifespan. Mm-hmm. And so what I hear you saying is that this is not just a programmatic approach, but this is helping a congregational community understand how do you develop this so that you can do this long-term? Is that right? Absolutely. And every congregation is in a particular context, socioeconomic, cultural, their community life, their people, you know, often people will say, well, we have a lot of people 60 and over. And I think, well, that's better than having no people, you know, like that's a really good thing. I said, but that's where you're starting faith formation. I said, remember all those 60 and over people, a lot of them are grandparents and they have children and grandchildren. So you get three generations. So I needed to find the elements that you could contextualize small church, big church, urban, suburban, rural, multi-ethnic, one ethnic community that you could take and say, huh, I need to adapt these, but these seven still ring true. And so as I'm working with churches now, I've been kind of working these seven elements for the last couple of years. As I'm working with churches now, I'm trying to say, take this, contextualize this. How might you think about your goals? How might you think about the practices for Christian living? How might you think about working intergenerationally as well as with families? How do you build a variety of programming, no matter how big your church might be, the size of the church, or you can still offer people some variety. One of the things about writing the book in 22 was there were a lot of learnings from pandemic faith formation. I know Mm -hmm. people struggled and were overwhelmed and the rest, but there were a lot of learnings that people began to adopt some digitally influenced and digitally sensitive approaches that can be long-term strategies in faith formation. So hybrid is part of the whole networking approach to faith formation that people can contextualize. So I think it was familiar to people, but it also stretched people. But it's definitely about being contextual. Every church has to take these and say, what will this look like for us, for our people, our history, our culture? And then over the next couple of years, how are we going to build out an approach that really embraces everybody? Hmm. Which has not been the dominant practice in churches even though we've had perhaps everybody at worship, we haven't really thought about faith formation across 10 decades of life. We haven't thought about faith formation in terms of thinking about each stage and age blending seamlessly into an approach over the lifespan. So that's what I'm really trying to advocate for. And I think it's, for me, lifelong faith formation is kind of a systemic response that church can make to a lot of the challenges we face about affiliation and disaffiliation and developing a sense of belonging across the generations today, especially post-pandemic. So every church is going to approach it a little bit differently, but I think that that's kind of the genius of thinking about elements, not programs or curricula or models. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two questions come to mind. One is that a lot of the conversation I have heard around faith formation, and it might just be my own age. But when I was working in a church, a lot of the conversation was around our youth, right? People under 30, basically. And how do we do faith formation, right, for those age groups, those generations? And rightly so. But there are many congregations where the vast majority of people in the the pews, in the seats, are people that are in the the boomer generation. And so I'm, I'm wondering how much can get lost if we're not focusing as well on that segment. And so I'm just wondering if you can talk about the dangers of hyper fixating on one particular age group or how do you balance that? Yeah, I think it's particularly, I mean, I like the word hyper fixated. I think it's particularly an issue today. And here's what a lifelong perspective allows us to do. So I started in youth ministry 50 years ago, working with teenagers. And one of the things that I learned really early on because I had some really great mentors around me was you can never separate young people from the whole life cycle. If you're going to understand young people, you have to understand them in context. And some of it's developmental and psychological, got that. But some of it's social and cultural, and some of it's their family and the community and neighborhoods they live in. So you're always taking them in a broader context. And so I watch a lot of people saying, we've got to solve the young adult problem, or we've got to solve the youth problem. And I'm thinking, you can't think about those today unless you think about the whole system of faith forming. Think about high school young people. The first question is, what happened in the first 13 or 14 years of their life Mm-hmm. That brought them to this, you know, so we, like we think about churches that do high school confirmation, like, well, we can't keep them after. And I always say, what did you start doing with them when they were born? You know, so to think about these systemically, or what are you doing with young people that prepares them for the next stage of life, which is young adulthood? And so what are the faith living skills they're going to bring? How are you empowering and equipping them for the next stage? And when you take a lifelong view, then you say, 
well, what are the gifts and talents that young people have to offer everybody in the community? And what gifts and talents, for example, do the boomers have to offer everybody in the community? And it's a more horizontal approach than a vertical approach. Like we're going to do something to people. We're going to do something with people. And so I always try to get people to focus on, if your focus is going to be high school or the second decade of life, so teenagers, then you have to say what's come before and what's come after. And if you're understanding adolescence really well, you're understanding the families that they grew up in. And if you're not really happy with what's going on with adolescents, then look at your children's program and look at your young children's faith formation from birth and baptism to like grade one and say, do we have kind of a seamless approach? This is the biggest struggle that I have working with churches is to get them to think contextually and seamlessly across the whole lifespan. Don't take any one problem or issue in isolation from the rest. Because then we do the same thing with the older folks. Well, we, we need an older adult group so they can go on bus trips to fill in the blank, right? I, I live in Connecticut, so the bus trip is to the two casinos in our state. I mean, like, sure. I don't know how you think about that as ministry of faith formation, but maybe they do a Bible study on the way back and forth. I don't know. I want to engage them in their wisdom and their faith and their storytelling and their mentoring ability with other generations. So for me, the lifelong perspectives is just a whole way of thinking and seeing that's much more systemic. As you were talking, the thought hit me. I was like thinking originally about generations. And in my mind, for whatever reason, as I've been imagining congregations during this conversation, I was imagining them as monolithic racially, which is not always the case, right? And so then I put myself in the perspective of someone who's overseeing faith formation. And it's one thing to understand your like psychological developments from an age perspective. But it's another thing when you include like cultural racial differences. And so if you're pastoring a multicultural, multiracial congregation, you might have one piece of the puzzle in terms of the developmental piece, right? Knowing what came before, what came after, but you might have some experiential gaps in understanding the unique, like cultural challenges, opportunities, and things that some members are facing. And so how do you go about ensuring that you have enough knowledge and education and wisdom to appropriately think about faith formation for the entirety of the lifespan, taking all those variables into account? Yeah. I think like every congregation is multicultural or to some extent. Okay. Yeah. Some are very, some are somewhat just because they live in neighborhoods and communities that are diverse. So one of the keys for me is that a lot of our faith formation programming over the last well long time has been one size fits all program. And once you take a one size fits all, then people have to fit that model. And so if you're a Latino young person and you know, you're pretty comfortable in English and Spanish, and you have a particular tradition to come out of your Hispanic tradition, and you're forced into a different kind of model, then it's not really meeting your needs and not speaking to your life. And so mm-hmm. what I try to emphasize is go to a one-size-fits-one model, meaning how do we look at the diversity of our people, what their needs are, what their preferences are, the ways of learning, their ways of interacting. When I work with Hispanic communities, they are much more family-oriented, I mean three or four-generation family-oriented, than a typical, in quotes, Anglo parish. And so how do you start there and say, we're going to build faith formation around our people? And so if kind of I'm pastoring or I'm the faith formation leader, my starting point has to be listening. I don't have all the skill set to work with each tradition. And I didn't grow up in your ethnic community. For me, I grew up in an ethnic community. It was was Italian, okay? So I know how it works, but I don't know your particularities. And so leadership that reflects the different ethnic makeup of your community, variety of programming activities, and especially with our young people, putting them into roles of leadership where they're really exercising agency and taking leadership, organizing things, making sure we have a diversity of leaders in place, But I think my first style is listening. My second style is enabling and equipping people and bringing the gifts out. And I move to a one-size-fits-one model of faith formation across the lifespan. I'm going to be able to connect people into groups. I'm going to be able to work with families. But I'm starting with them. And I think the more person-centered approach as opposed to the program-centered approach freezes up to be, I think, a better multicultural community than the older models. Because you have to be honest. A lot of the resources and programs were not written for a multicultural community. Yeah. They certainly weren't written for particular ethnic groups and communities and their needs. So if we start there and work our way back and say, now what do we need to do? 
if people feel honored and respected because you listen, you can do anything, right? I mean, you can go anywhere creatively with people, but I think people are just really resistant to this is the way we've always done it. You change your life to fit our program. Those days are completely gone because people will simply say, thank you, but no thanks. And they'll find someplace else that meets their needs. So John, as you talk about that, I think, and maybe this is just my default, but I have a tendency to believe that it's probably the default of many others as well, that when we think about faith formation, we tend to put that in the category of education, which then puts us in the category of a person standing at the front of a room and a bunch of people sitting listening to that person and the transfer of information from one person to the other. And I get the sense that that's not at all what you're talking about. So can you help nuance the understanding of how you see this one-size-fits-one scenario in congregational life? Sure. What's important is to distinguish a couple of key words, education, learning, and schooling. So we're all familiar with schooling, even though schooling models have changed dramatically, whether we were paying attention or not, they have. But learning is the primary category. And so I put learning and forming faith together. So learning is always about changing. And there's a gazillion ways to learn, which is really hard for churches to wrap their heads around that people can, like I always say, people say, well, you know, can people really learn on their own? I think, well, don't you pray on your own every day? Don't you read the Bible on your own? I mean, sometimes I read it with a group. Sometimes I read it in a large group, but it's a personal. So once you move to the learning as your umbrella category, what you realize is there's a million ways to learn, especially now with all the digital enhancements that we can utilize for learning. And that education is a systematic attempt to help people learn. So that's where curricula, that's where programming activities come in. And schooling is one particular place where education happens and hopefully people learn. (laughs) So it's kind of the model because we thought about schooling as the primary where education happens. And then sometimes people learn. I flip it and say learning is what goes on Mm 24-7, formal, informal, structured, unstructured. Sometimes it happens in structured learning, which we call education. And sometimes that education happens in a school. For people in churches, they don't have the school piece. I mean, so you're doing education that is formal and informal. It's structured and not structured. So to think broadly about that, and then we move into the world of learning and faith formations. Like we never get to a point where we say, well, I, you know, I'm a mature disciple. I've got it all, right? Well, you don't have it all. Growing in faith and discipleship is a lifelong process. And we know that. And it touches our head and our hearts and our lives. And so what's really important is this holistic understanding of learning that can drive us. And once you start with learning and once you start with people and helping people grow in faith, then we could use all kinds of methods to help them do that. That one reframing of the way we think about faith formation can change everything in a congregation. Because then we look at worship and say, huh, how do we learn in and through worship? Then we look at our social justice efforts and our service efforts. How do we learn through acting for justice and serving people, et cetera, et cetera. So learning becomes our kind of our dynamic. So forming faith and faith formation, something goes on 24-7 at home, church, the community, world, online. It's overwhelming for people to say, oh, my goodness. But it's also freeing because now you have these opportunities to start where people are, not where the program is or where the church is. Yeah. Thank you so much, John, for that paradigm, because I think it reminds me that we are learning all day long. It's just a question of what are your sources and what are you learning? And I think what you're describing is a way for congregations to help people learn throughout each day and be formed around the faith tradition that they claim, as opposed to just being formed and shaped by social media, by news media, by relationships that they have that are completely divorced from any kind of faith formation. Absolutely. As you think about this era of congregational life, I'm wondering what most excites you when it comes to faith formation moving forward? So I'll do this over a couple of years. That's a great question. Thanks. I worked with a lot of churches, hundreds of churches back in the early 2010s doing a program called 21st Century Faith Formation. So nobody would come to a program called 20th Century Faith Formation in 2010. So but it was about learning about methods and tools, especially the new digital tools. Remember, 2010, 10, 2011, 2012 was just the beginning of all this, right? In many ways. And so the pandemic hit and I watched the churches that had already been working five, six, seven, eight years, bringing on board digitally enhanced approaches to faith formation, you know, and they just scaled up their efforts and they just like, they didn't miss a beat. 
during the pandemic. And then I watch other churches that had been really hesitant, or I call them deniers. You're like, oh, we don't want to get into all that stuff. They really struggled in the beginning of the pandemic. Now, some adapted and some just basically went on sabbatical, you know, waiting for the pandemic to be over. The thing that gave me such great hope was that those churches that had built up this more person-centered, 21st century style faith formation that used all these methods were much more resilient and adaptable. And I mm-hmm. think resilience and adaptability are just the key for church life today. And so we all hear stories about the churches that didn't do very well. But I want to talk about the stories of churches that did really, really well during the pandemic in reaching their people, engaging their people. I heard from pastors and catechetical leaders, you know, and faith formation leaders, you know, we really started listening to our people in more in depth. We were talking with them. We were doing focus groups. And then we were responding. And I'm thinking... That's what you want to carry forward is that we're responding to the hungers, needs, interests, schedules, complexities of your life. We're on your page. We're your support system for faith growth. The churches that are carrying that forward now into 22, 23, 24, they're going to grow. I know it sounds funny to talk about these churches growing. All the messages, churches are climbing, we're all going out of business. It's the end of the world. Of course, it's not any of those things, actually. Hmm. But whether you're a small church, middle-sized, big church, it really didn't make much difference in the pandemic. It was if you were more adaptable and resilient and had already been pioneering and piloting and experimenting with different approaches. And so I watched people who took their family-centered approach and they just upped their game during the pandemic to really engage, stay connected with families. And you know what? All those families came back to participation at church because we have balanced at church, at home, online, one-to-one, small group, we blended all those things. So my encouragement is that churches are far more resilient and adaptable than they think they are. And churches that start utilizing these technologies and approaches and practices of lifelong faith formation are in a great position to move with their people. And then every church can do this. I mean, so people say, well, our church can never do it. We only have 75 people. I'm thinking 75 people you know, you're a little you're a little ship on the ocean as opposed to the big aircraft carriers of these big churches, right? You can turn on a dime. 75 is terrific, you know? So size is no longer a matter because small churches have access to the same resources the big churches have, right? And the approaches work in small churches, middle-sized churches, and big churches. The key is the resiliency and adaptability because you're doing things that allow you to stay in relationship with people across the whole lifespan. And I have been really impressed with the number of churches that are more lifelong now in 2022 than they were in 2019. And I'm thinking, you know, through the struggle, through the hardship, through all the rest during the pandemic, they were figuring out faith formation in a way that's going to serve them really well moving forward because now they got even more ways to do faith formation. And those that really upped their game with older adults, you know, we older adults, you know, they have their own little Bible study groups and they meet on Tuesday mornings. They're like isolated. The ones that really connected them, they have this third or fourth generation that's actively engaged in faith formation now. So I'm seeing intergenerational programming coming back. I'm seeing family program coming back. I'm watching people say, we've got to reconnect the generations because people felt isolated during the pandemic. See, I think all that's good. And I try to get people over the hump of saying, you can't go directly at the disaffiliation phenomena. What you can do is build a platform of engagement and responsiveness to people. So you have something to invite people. The new line I've been using when I do workshops is you have to build more front porch experiences. Things that are on the front porch of the church, in people's homes, out in the community, in public settings, where we engage in these spaces and places, we can engage in faith forming. Everything can happen within the church, and the pandemic taught us that. So I'm encouraging churches to keep going that direction, you know, like resist the urge to go back to the fall of 2019, because there is no road back to the fall of 2019. I mean, there's no way to get back there. Keep moving because you'll learn a lot during the pandemic. So that's a long answer to a really short, but really good question. That's what makes me hopeful to see that people want to continue to innovate, continue to adapt, and that's going to bring resilience. And as things change over which we have no control, they're able to be responsive. And I think churches that embrace lifelong faith formation are especially in a good position both within the church community, but also in their front porch experiences because they're offering multiple ways for people to grow. Yeah. 
That's great. Thanks, John. So as we come to the end of our time here, I have one more question or thought for encouragement for smaller congregations. Number one, smaller congregations are the majority. It's like 80 to 90% of congregations are 250 or less, some very large percentage of that are 150 or less. But I have to believe that there are, based on the way you describe this methodology or the way you describe this way of thinking about faith formation, there are some advantages to being a smaller congregation. And I would love to hear some encouragement for those smaller congregational leaders about how some of the advantages they have in the ways that they can form faith in their communities. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, over the last 20, 25 years, intergenerational faith formation in a lot of different formats and has really risen in importance. It is a perfect model for a smaller church to bring the generations together to pray, to learn, to share, to grow, to serve, to do things intergenerationally because it builds the fabric of the community. And when you're smaller, it's just so much easier to do that than a church of like 5,000 members. You know, so my message to smaller churches is capitalize on your assets, on your strengths. And one of them is you're smaller. You can build more relationships. You can do more things together. So unfortunately, the model has been this age segregated approach to faith formation for decades and decades. We're moving away from that into much more family-centered or intergenerational, small churches are perfectly positioned to do that. Small churches are also perfectly positioned to build out front porches, to engage their people out in the community and say, we're a church for the whole community. And I've been encouraging people to say, you know, you're going to offer a parenting program for parents of young children or grade school children, open it up to the whole community. You can do a vacation Bible school and you only have a few kids. We'll open it up to all the children in the community because it's the best outreach that you could be doing. It's the best way people could come in contact with the believing community, come in contact with the good news, you know, in a way that's, it's so inviting and involving. It's not, you know, coming on to people in a strong way. So small churches can really capitalize on some of their things. Some of the programs that they've done traditionally, even though they have smaller numbers, they can open up to invite people. Other thing about smaller churches oftentimes, and this will be a demographic across uh, every denomination, is that they're older. And so, I keep on saying, how are you equipping, empowering the grandparent generation to share faith with their children and their grandchildren? And how and it's, can you equip them? Because they're the best delegates back to the family. And can you have grandparent-grandchild programs? You know, whether the grandchild lives in your community or not, doesn't make any difference. I did a program in a church where our, they designed the program. I was kind of the instigator in which they did a grandparent-grandchild camp in the summer. And some grandparents lived in the community. They brought their grandkids in. Other grandchildren live in the community, they brought their grandparents in, you know, and it was one of the best things that church had ever done. I mean, the buzz about it lasted months, you know, so it's come a regular pattern of what they do. So build on your strengths and your assets. And I think oftentimes we don't think about the 60 and over crowd as one of our big assets because they have outreach, not only in the community, they have outreach into their family systems. So just maximize your strengths. You don't have to look like a big church and you shouldn't because that's not who you are. And the other thing is today, small churches have access to all the resources online that big churches do. Training, you know, like we do a lot of free training, Center for Congregations, a lot of training, podcast resources, print resources, program resources, most of it free or low cost. So the barriers that used to exist a decade ago don't exist anymore. And I just keep reminding people, you know, for about $100, you can put up your own website for faith formation in your church, you know, very simply. And remember, there's a 12 or 13-year-old lurking somewhere who will build that for you. <laughs> like, and increasingly, there's probably a fourth or fifth grader somewhere who will build it for you at this point. So I think the small church has easier access to doing those things. It can be much more adaptable and responsive. And I would play on that. Thank you so much, John. And we're just a big fan of your work, John, who you are. The Center for Congregations appreciates your work in the world. And so thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for being a part of the podcast today. For those of you listening, know that John will be doing a couple of Ed events based on his new book and based on this framework in September. So September 22nd and September 28th, you can find those. And that is 2022, depending on when you're listening to this. You can find those on our website at centerforcongregations.org slash workshops. If it is past those dates, shoot us an email at podcast at centerforcongregations.org and we can send you a version of the recording so that you can take advantage of that as well. And hey, John, we'll link your website definitely in our show notes, but are there any social media handles or anything else you would like us to share with the public that they can follow you or follow your work? 
No, simply uh, lifelongfaith.com is the core website. And then from there, you can email me, which I'm very happy to answer emails. And you could also access the other websites that we build to help with lifelong faith formation. Awesome. Yeah. And John means that he is accessible. So if you hear this and you're curious and you want to talk to him, he'd be more than happy to do it. So many resources on his website. And I'm pretty sure most or or all of that is free, John. All of it's free. All of it's free. So plenty of great resources on faith formation on his website. So John and his organization are a fantastic resource. Encourage you to check him out. So John, thank you again so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. got to listen in on the conversation that we had with John Roberto. So you're caught up like we are. And Matt, I'm wondering what highlights or what parts of that conversation really stood out to you? Well, one of the first things was just his wonderful delineation of the difference between school education and learning Mm. and how we often as a society get that backwards. And so I think just meditating on that and thinking about that in your congregational context could be like potentially years of work and right. and revising and revamping of how you understand faith formation in your context. I just thought that was brilliant. And it was a framework that I had never really considered before. Yeah, same. I thought that it was almost artful the way he unpacked that mm-hmm. and drew the analogies to even preaching and ministry. So I really appreciated that. And I enjoyed the section of the conversation where we talked about not only thinking about generational differences, but also thinking about cultural differences, differences as it relates to values. And specifically when he named that everyone comes from a culture, I think that's really important and that no matter what your congregation is, it is going to be multicultural to some degree. Even if we just think about or just change the language a little to think about family systems, right? Like each family system and unit has its own set of like cultural values, norms, and you're bringing all those together in a congregation and then competing with the overall set of values and norms. And so Mm -hmm. just for a congregation to have that in mind, regardless of how ethnically or racially diverse it may or may not be, I think is a really important framing for faith formation work. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's about getting behind the assumptions. And something that I was thinking during the interview is he was talking about the importance of intergenerational faith formation When I was growing up, there was just this assumption in me as a teenager, as a young adult, even as a college or even a seminary student, that once you got into your 40s and had a spouse and children and a stable job, things were kind of settled for you. Mm. (laughs) Like there wasn't much change. There wasn't much difficulty that basically all of the major changes in life cease by the time you're, I don't know, 35. Mm. And then you just kind of ride things out. And being in my uh, <clears throat> mid-40s, generously mm-hmm. saying mid-40s, <laughs> for those of you younger than that, it is it is not true <laughs> <laughs> that life continues to be incredibly difficult. Faith is something that I continually wrestle with, not in a bad way, but just in an iterative way. And I think it's important that I, I, I'm frustrated that the generation before me did not prepare me for the fact that life is still difficult in middle age. Mm-hmm. I'm frustrated that it wasn't discussed that life is still hard at that point and that you still have relational issues and that you still wrestle with faith and how does faith really meet day-to-day life. Mm. Those questions were not answered for me when I was younger. I assumed that they would be answered by the time I got to this age and they still have not been answered, but no one prepared me for that. And so I think the intergenerational nature of faith formation is taking people who are, you know, at this point we're talking silent generation, boomers, Xers, millennials and Gen Z. Mm -hmm. That whole span is here right now. And every season of life, there are different challenges and difficulties. And something interesting that we found out during our Engaging Young Adults initiative, where they got some young adults together with some older adults in congregations, they actually shared a lot in common from what they were struggling with in terms of some isolation, in terms of lack of relationships. And so there was actually a good commonality found between those generations. And I think all of that lends itself to human flourishing because it's understanding that you're not unique in that, you're not alone in that, 
And then also helping find that common ground and common experience and also building those relationships in the very congregation that you're already in. But when you have siloed generational ministry, there's no opportunity for that to show up. And I would have loved for the way that I grew up to be exposed to people in later stages of life to help prepare me for what they have experienced so that I knew that it was coming and not just assuming that life is smooth sailing once you hit 40. Mm. That's really, really rich. And I can't help but wonder, and I'm taking us down a little bit of a, a rabbit hole here, but I can't help but wonder if some of what you're talking about is the difference between the personality types that don't engage as directly with the questions that come up versus those like yourself that do. Because I know people that are, you know, older than you that are more or less floating through life, not that they don't have those things that don't make sense or don't get under their skin, but there's like their dominant paradigm and it'll come in, maybe cause a little interruption, but they just kind of move by it instead of really interrogating it, seeing if they can integrate it. Whereas you and myself, we are more people that are going to like see this disruption and really just sit down with it and try to wrestle with it and ask more questions. And so I wonder if some of that, those personality differences there that shape the degree of disruption that we might experience sometimes. Some of that it won't like, you know, health scares, major family issues. You're going to feel that no matter what I think. But some of this other stuff, others might not feel as much. Yeah, I'm sure that that's true. But at the same time, I wonder as we look at, and this is a bit of a tangent, but it does bear on our intergenerational conversation. As we look at the work of like David Kinnaman, where he uh, the book, You Lost Me, and it was mm-hmm. primarily about young adults leaving the faith. And the more information and research that I understand about people stepping away from the faith tradition that they were raised in, it's a dissatisfaction with how that faith tradition accurately depicts and describes their experience of life. That's fair. And I think that is potentially what I encountered in some of my life. And there have to be people in older generations who have been thoughtful and have had the same kinds of experiences and have, you know, wanted to peek behind the curtain, mm-hmm. but where are those voices? Yeah. And I have to believe that if our congregation growing up, it had a little bit more intergenerational flavor to it. In fact, there actually was a guy who was older than me. He was a little bit younger than my dad's age, but he was a mentor to me because he thought that way too. But I just got lucky because he just happened to volunteer to be part of the youth leadership. Mm. So I just basically got lucky that I was able to build a relationship with him. It wasn't like there was an established way of us being all together. Mm. And I think that bears on faith formation too, that again, when you're talking faith formation or discipleship, you're telling people this life of faith actually has something to say about what you experience in life and how you live your life on a day-to-day basis. And when someone gets raised in a tradition, but then starts hitting those crises in life or the really hard things that happen once you get into college, once you start having deep relationships with significant others, once you get married, once you have children, you might run into places where what you were taught doesn't seem to fit what you're experiencing. And that dissonance is really damaging. And so what is the faith formation or discipleship that needs to happen through all stages of life to help shepherd people through those moments? Because I think that's why an entire generation has become disenfranchised because the faith that they were raised in, when it met what they were experiencing in the world, they said, this just doesn't make sense anymore. And I'm not sure what to do about it. And so I'm just going to step away from this. And, you know, not all of them by any means have stepped away from faith, just maybe the tradition that they were raised in. Absolutely. And I'm one of those people that stepped away for some of those very reasons. And it's not even just that the tradition I was raised in didn't make sense and align with the life I was experiencing. It's that when I brought the questions that life was throwing my way into my tradition, the tradition couldn't hold them with me. The Mm -hmm. tradition couldn't sit with me in it and shift as I was shifting in the way that I needed it to shift, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I felt like I had to go. And I wonder... As you were talking, I, I I was like wrestling with this thought of, I bet on average, the people that are volunteering in congregations, <clears throat> excuse me, I hit puberty again for a second. The people that are volunteering <laughs> in congregations are probably more often than not, not those that felt like the system couldn't hold their questions early on because those folks probably either stepped back in their congregations, even if they're still attending and just aren't as involved or they left entirely. And so... Really what this means is it's really important for folks that are part of a tradition that do know what it is, what it feels like to have life throw 
crazy destabilizing questions your way and still wrestle with that within your tradition, those of you, we need y'all doing faith formation. Like if you have felt like there's um, Mm -hmm. a call or an opportunity for you to step deeper into your congregational life, but you're unsure, listen to that poll because there are youth out there, there are teens out there, there are young adults, there are midlife adults, there are older adults that need a space to wrestle and you might be someone that can help create that space so that folks don't feel like they have to leave. Not that leaving's bad. I stand mm-hmm. by it sometimes, right? But I don't think it always has to happen because our traditions can be more flexible. We are the ones that are the gatekeepers for the flexibility of a tradition, right? Like it falls on our shoulders if we're part of it. Mm-hmm. And so we get to determine how flexible it gets to be. So yeah, I just that was the thought that came to me. Like maybe you've been wondering... I need a sign to feel like I can step deeper into this volunteering because I've got the time and space, but I don't know that I'm qualified. This might be your sign. Like, step in, ask where help is needed and see how your gifts might match with what is needed in your congregation or community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to bring it back to the interview, you know, pick up John's book and read through it because there may be ways of you being part of faith formation that this will open your eyes to that you've not seen before because it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to run a weekly Bible study from now until kingdom come. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, right. It could be something very different that fits more your personality and your skill sets and your abilities. So it, it doesn't have to look like the traditional ways that we have understood discipleship or faith formation. agree. In that vein, Matt, of books and resources, are there any resources that you wanted to bring to supplement this interview? Yeah, well, definitely. I want to highlight again John's book. John has been doing this for like 30, 40 years and just really knows this stuff inside and out. You know, that we don't script questions usually to guests, and we didn't in this case. And so when I asked him about classroom education and he brought out that education versus schooling, that was just off the top of his head. Like, He knows this stuff cold. He is phenomenal. So please check out his book or at the very least his website because he's got tons of free resources. And again, I invite you to send him an email if you have questions for him. John genuinely is responsive and uh, he's not a celebrity where he's just getting millions of people trying to clamor for his attention on a daily basis. Like he's just a regular guy who really does want to help. And so I encourage people to check out the website, check out his book. And if you're curious and want more, shoot him an email. But beyond that, I did take a look at a couple of resources that we have on our CRG. One is called Gen On Ministries, which is actually an intergenerational ministry resource with a lot of different facets to it. And so I would encourage you to check out the website. And again, we'll list this in the show notes, genonministries.org. But they have logos training tools and support. They've got aspects of helping with intergenerational ministry, something they call LIFT, Living in Faith Together, workshops and sessions, tools and support. They have trainings available free resources, some paid resources, youth summits, all kinds of things on their website to check out for intergenerational faith formation, which is a big part of what John talked about in our interview. What have you got, Ben? Yeah, I found Refocus Ministries, which it sounds familiar. So I'm thinking we might have included this as a resource early on in the podcast in season one or two. But Refocus Ministry is an organization that helps faith communities foster intergenerational discipleship. And it provides training and information for worship and faith formation at home. And so I like this resource because it includes some coaching and consulting, especially for families. It's got some online webinars. It's got book lists, blogs, social media pages, an intergenerational toolkit. Really, most of the things you might want or need to think about faith formation ministry, not only within the congregation, but also what you can do at home to develop and to kind of deepen your faith formation or the faith formation of your family in your own house. And I really like that because it's not just the responsibility of the ministries that operate within your church building or uh, that are run by your paid church staff to think about faith formation, right? We all get to participate in this. And so I like the kind of the expansive focus of Refocus Ministries. Yeah, the reason that this sounds familiar, Ben, is probably because we had Christina Embry in as an educator for one of our education events, Mm. and this is her organization. So if anybody's interested in watching the recording of that, the live online event that we recorded, shoot us an email at podcast at centerforcongregations.org, and we can send you the link to check out Christina Embry and hear her talk about intergenerational faith formation. Excellent. Thank you, Matt. I hope you all take a minute and check that out for sure. And I've got one more resource. This is from 2013, so it's from a while back, but it's interesting because the subject matter hits on some things that I'm hearing in some of the podcasts and some of the people that I listen to today. This is an online video called Transformational Groups from The Exchange, which is a show with Ed Stetzer and Eric Geiger. And this is going to be a little more from the conservative spectrum of things. 
and they talk about the discipleship deficit within the Christian church. And again, this is back from 2013, but I've heard a lot of conversation today in the evangelical church as well of the fact that the 45 minutes worship and preaching on Sunday morning for some people is about all of the information that they're getting from their congregation. Mm -hmm. And so these specific videos are arguing for small groups as a place for that faith formation or discipleship to happen, which is definitely one place that it can happen. But I think it's important for congregations to begin thinking about and taking a look at how are we forming the faith of the people who come and are a part of our community. Because I think we can get distracted from some of the things that Ben was talking about on the front end of the interview, that when we look at facilities, we look at programs, we were concerned about budget. And of course, you have to think about those things. Of course, they're important and they need to be managed. But I think sometimes the faith formation can get lost in the bustle and the day-to-day of operations and trying to keep things moving. And so this video series, I think, would be helpful to just think through the discipleship deficit and hear some of the diagnoses that they had back in 2013 that I think are probably still accurate today. And then also small groups as a possible alternative or way of helping in faith formation. Mm. Excellent. Thank you for that, Matt. I think all these, again, are designed just to be supplements to the conversation with John and to the resources that are connected to John as well. So be sure to check out all of the resources we have related to faith formation on the CRG, which is the Congregational Resource Guide. It's an online database that we manage and run, and you can find that at thecrg.org. If you want more information about the center itself, you can visit our website or follow us, not or, visit our website and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Center for Congregations. And feel free to reach out to Ben and I directly. If you have questions or thoughts on this topic or other topics, you can reach us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org, all spelled out. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future presenters, future topics, or feedback or resources that you have on this or any other topics that we have done in the past. Absolutely. And as always, we really appreciate your support and your listenership. And if you like what you've been hearing these last four seasons, take a moment and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And be sure that you follow and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to podcasts. We also want to give our geolocation shout out to our listeners in Green Lake, Wisconsin. We really appreciate the Midwest listenership. So those of you that are listening and downloading in Green Lake, thank you so much. And let us know if you have suggestions, comments, questions, or concerns. And as always, we want to thank the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. They fund our work, and we are grateful for that funding, which allows us to do the work at the Center for Congregations, the CRG, and this podcast. And last but certainly not least, we got to give big ups and big props to Jaden Lee, our friend and the audio engineer for this podcast. Jaden, you do great work. We appreciate your friendship and the wisdom that you've given us on this podcast. So check out Jaden. You can find him on social media. He's just a great dude and great at what he does. Again, thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another interview and conversation for the Center for Congregations. I'm Matt Burke. And I am unadvertisable. See y'all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.